Everyone found their own way to cope in the city beneath the black sun. Alex Monroe read the nearest library for every book they had in the Redwall series, and he read each and every one cover to cover just as he has a child. He probably has the whole series memorized by this point, not to mention being able to recite the entire genealogy of warrior mice from Martin through Madame Mayo. The only exception is Alcaster Redwall, which he hated when he was a 10 and hates to this day. He left that one lying on its side on the shelf in the library. Jody Diggs started exercising, shadow boxing with the outlines of a man etched in duct tape on the wall. She split her knuckles, she cracked her bones, they reformed stronger than they had been. Each day she chipped away at the woman she had been and released a little bit more than the new one she was becoming. Cassandra sharpened her blade and donned her red hood. Some people found lives to save, some people found lives to take. Some people opened their hearts to God, whatever name they ultimately went with. Some embraced the dark as a balm against the inflamed dread of their souls. When the sky went dark and the black sun rose, each person found their own individual way to cope. Ernest Fleming had a box. He hadn't been born in the city. In fact, he started out on the opposite side of the country. He moved for school and stayed for work and, eventually, family. When he first moved to the city, it had been too much. Too much noise, too much stench, too much humanity pressing against him from every corner. He felt suffocated in his own skin. He overloaded, crashed, and burned. Spent most of that first semester penned up in his dorm room. When he wasn't crying, he was lost in despair, trying to wish away the sick feeling that had latched onto his gut. Slow to unpack, he still had boxes from the move waiting to be emptied. After the last his belongings were completely unloaded one especially lonely night, he was left with just a single box. The box. He's wearing it right this moment. Or isn't telling you this. He wore it six times that first semester, and afterwards felt meant to be prepared to engage with life in the city. But he kept the box, always. It was in his closet all through the rest of freshman and sophomore year, and in his junior year, when a particular final pressed down on him with particular pressure, he took the box out of his closet and wore it once more. The box stayed with him, unused, for another eight years. It wasn't until his wedding day when the reality of what he was engaging in truly hit him, he excused himself to spend a half hour in its dark confines. He didn't need it after that. Now the market ebbed and flowed and work became strained. Not even when Donna told him she was pregnant, when their daughter Rebecca came screaming into the world. The box moved from apartment to apartment with the family, gathering varieties of dust and varieties of storage spaces. And while Ernest Fleming was comforted to know it was at all times, knowing it was there whenever he might need it, he never really expected to need it again. And then came the black sun. Let's establish one thing clear before we proceed. What we're talking about here is just a box, a cardboard box, only a little deeper and wider than the average shoe box. There's not going to be some twist where it turns out that the box has actual magical properties, but only if you believe in it. Nothing like that. It's a cardboard box identical to an endless assortment of other cardboard boxes, and Ernest Fleming is wearing it on his head. Now a romantic might hear this description and reply, but wait a minute, isn't there a magic in mundane objects? 
Don't we infuse the ordinary and everyday items of our lives with our souls and personalities? And isn't that a kind of magic? And that may be. But what we're talking about is just a cardboard box. What Ernest Fleming would do, how it would work, is he'd find a cool, dark space, sit down, place the box over his head, and clench his toes and fingers. By doing this, Ernest Fleming could shut out the world around him. For a time, he had been satisfied to simply float in his own private ether, the silence of relief from the constant life of the city. But as time went on, he built the world within the box, filling it with his past and his imaginings. By wearing the box, Ernest Fleming was able to survey the incidents of his life like a documentary filmmaker curled up in a secret bunker, snapping photos of the unaware tiger that ambles by, unaware of the meal within pouncing distance. Ernest Fleming could watch his heartbreaks and examine his failings without fear. It might even have been possible for someone to look at Ernest Fleming's trip to the box as, overall, a healthy thing that allowed him to safely engage with and deal with yesterday's baggage and today's trials. With this method, he was steadily becoming a healthier and more complete person. But then came the Black Sun. He held it together for a week. In those early days, there were flurries of activity. People got connected, got organized. The end result being that many got hopeful. There was an atmosphere, at least in Ernest Fleming's apartment complex, that this matter could and would be settled in a matter of days. And soon the experience of being transported to the strange world of the black sun and the midnight desert and the monsters beyond comprehension would be a wild story to tell at parties and especially vivid nightmare to be laughed at in the soothing light of day. Donna doubted. Rebecca, then a girl of ten, feared. Ernest Fleming wore a smile and insisted to his two girls that they just need to stay positive. And he believed what he said. He truly did. For one week. And then, well then a strange thing happened. Ernest Fleming went on a food run at the local church where cops had amassed all the nearby supplies and were carefully rationing out produce and amenities. Ernest Fleming collected the food he needed and began the walk back home. It had rained the night before, leaving deep black puddles against the sidewalk. A mirrored version of Ernest Fleming walked alongside the flesh and blood one. It happened just as he passed another man, an Indian fellow that Ernest Fleming thought he recognized from his building. As they passed each other, Ernest on the inside and the other man on the outside, a tentacle shot out of the puddle and wrapped itself around the Indian man and dragged him, screaming, into the water. Only, only the puddle wasn't a puddle anymore. Black water enveloped the man's legs, his body clogged his mouth as he sucked in breath for another final cry of terror and anguish and finally wrapped entirely around his head. The water surface was still. Not even a ripple. Ernest Fleming stood frozen for a while after that. When he finally mustered the nerve to peer over the edge of the curb, he could plainly see that the puddle was once more just a puddle, not even ankle deep. He walked home. He set the food on the table. He nodded to his wife and daughter. He went out again, this time going to the attic. He got the box, and this time, he did not try to fill the emptiness with a pleasant past or cheerful daydream. This time, he 
he sought only void. He found it and happily surrendered. For the first few weeks, Ernest Fleming would make excuses so he could go to the attic and use the box. He could be gone for hours, sometimes multiple times a day. Don didn't know what she thought he might be doing up there, so one day she got fed up and followed him. She definitely didn't know what to think when she entered the attic and found him sitting there with a box on his head, him sitting silent and steady as a statue. Don called his name. She grabbed his shoulders and shook him back and forth. Finally, she tore the box from his head. His screams would not stop until she replaced it. After she had, he took it off with his own two hands. You could tell that she was afraid, so he broke it down for as clearly and as gently as he could. He told her how he used the box to escape, how he was able to transcend whatever physical or emotional handcuffs he wore whenever the box was on his head. And after he explained all that, Donna had just one request. Teach me she said. So he did. They brought the box into the apartment and forgot all shame. They had placed it at the center of the table and now the husband or wife could stand to have anyone move it, not even their daughter Rebecca. Each of them built the kingdom. Donna strolled across grassy acres, a warm breeze tickling her hair. She lay in a beach chair on the sands by the lake. With a wave of her hand, she could summon a wide array of beautiful boys to emerge from the surf. Ernest lay in his old dorm room. He was thin, as he had been, carefree, as he had sometimes been. The whole world was ahead of him. His doors swing open to reveal a parade of girls, the ones he disappointed and disappointed by. Flesh mingled with flesh in a million different combinations. And in this way, the flowing parents forgot what it meant to be afraid. As bad news as the bad news struck the city and its inhabitants, their smiles never wavered. They did not join the crush of people who tried to claim the base in the center of the city when the man McRae fortified that area. There was war in the street in those days, men fighting men with pipes, with glass, with broken bottles, and with fire. The wails and cries climbed from the streets to beyond the high skyscrapers up into the blank darkness of the sky that held the black sun. But Mr. and Mrs. Fleming did not notice. They had the box. When the great kaiju creature the first October trolled through the city and knocked down many of the tallest, strongest buildings with nothing more than a twitch of its hide, the Flemings did not mind. Men tore their eyes out at the sight of this creature. Some knelt down in supplication what they could only believe was a god emerging from the midnight desert to consume the city whole, the end of all worlds arriving in scale and in fang. But this too passed. The kaiju wandered away, apparently unaware of the apocalyptic pall it had cast over the city. The Flemings did not notice. They had the box. When one was using, the other sat quietly and awaited their turn. Everything else in life, be it food, or sleep, or bathroom breaks, all of it existed only to sustain them from fix to fix. You may hear this and say that there is no way that this could last, and you'd be right, it didn't.
Donna went out for food one day. Donna didn't come back. Ernest Fleming's first instinct was to go at the box, but he shook it off and pressed on to find his wife. He went a few blocks and came across a small group of people standing in a semicircle in the middle of the street. They were arranged around a still fresh smear of blood. What had happened, they told Ernest Fleming, is this woman had been out carrying bags of food when the green flares went up. Now everyone in the city knew that the green flares meant trouble was fast approaching, and you'd better take cover. But this lady didn't seem to know that. Instead, she stopped dead in the middle of the street to watch the lights like they were a 4th of July show. The bird creatures had dropped from the sky and fastened their wicked claws into her. She was still alive, one of the group said. I saw. She was still alive when they began to rip. Ernest Fleming said nothing. He stared at the smear of blood, the only trace left of her. He thought about that day, years ago now, when the Indian man had been dragged into the puddle. At the time, it wasn't the violence of the act that had disturbed him, but the casual impossibility of what had occurred. It was the breakdown of those basic logics that kept him up at night long after and sent him scurrying to his box. But now, now such things did not seem so impossible. Staring into the blood smear, he thought he could see the whole city reflected back. Black towers rose against red skies. It was the easiest thing to imagine all he needed to do was take one step, one short step, and he would sink into this upside down world. Perhaps she would be there, his bride draped in red silk. He went home. Rebecca was waiting, anxious. She wanted to know where mom was. Ernest Fleming walked past her, not saying a word. He went straight for the box. A month passed like this. He did not speak. He barely ate. His beard went untrimmed, his skin unwashed. Did he sleep? Can't be called sleep if the subject can never truly be said to be awake. He lived half in and half out of the dreaming world at all times. No longer did a bevy of co-eds and favorite film stars tramp through his door, giggling to be so near his presence. Now was her. Only ever her. They laid together in the dream bed as it never would again the physical one. Him worshipping her in a way that he never did while she was alive. Strange as it may seem, he felt content. Rebecca cried herself to sleep each night. Then there came the day when the door swung open, and it was Donna, not the Donna he'd been conjuring from his own memories and desires. It was the Donna of the Red World. She wore a gown of fire and a crown of blood. When he touched her, her skin bled ash. She leaned in close and spoke to him in a whisper. It will come for you in seven days, she said. Ernest Fleming took the box off. He cleaned himself up and made dinner. Day by candlelight in that evening, Rebecca did not sob. 
he was sure that he would never wear the box again. The next day, he put it on. She was waiting for him. It will come for you in six days. He decided to destroy it. Yes, that was his only recourse. Destroy the object and destroy the spell it had over him. The influence it maintained over his life. His only sane path was to burn the box and set the ashes to run across the wind. He had no doubts. He was positive he would do it. Until he didn't. Maybe I can't bring myself to destroy it, he reasoned. But at least I know I never need to wear it again. Until he did. She was there once more. It will come for you in five days, she said. He tried to distract himself with games and hobbies and books. That took up most of the morning. But the afternoon stretched ahead, endless. And so, it will come for you in four days. He tried to walk himself past the point of exhaustion, tracing a curving route all through the city. He was mindful of puddles below and flames above. When he came home, he was indeed exhausted. And if there was one thing he was sure of, it was that he would not be putting that box on anytime soon. It will come for you in three days. He didn't try to find it after that. With his remaining time, he submitted entirely to the box and to the lady that waited within. It will come for you in two days. The dorm hallucination had long since been abandoned. It was him, the woman, and the absence. It will come for you in one day. Will you be with me? He asked her. The thing with Donna's face kissed him. Give yourself to me, she said. Look at me. He did. And he saw. And he was no longer afraid. And then it was the day. When it happened, it went like this. Green flares once again went up, the warning swiftly carrying across the city. It was not a singular beast this time, or even a flock or herd of something. It was a swarm. A thousand million particles of gnashing teeth and chittering wings, and it fell upon the city like a downpour. Many were able to bend down their respective hatches and ride out this storm. In the center of the city, the defenders opened the fire hoses and doused whirring cloud of death with bursts of orange and gold burning. The swarm learned quickly to avoid this area. Ernest Fleming took no such action. Not when the windows groaned against the pressure. Not when the glass began to break. Not even when his daughter began to scream. He was in the box. Donna's with him. She grinned her red grin. She cupped his head into her hands. He placed his armor around her waist. Their song was playing, a low instrumental groove from somewhere in the distance. 
She was speaking to him, or at least, her lips were moving. He couldn't make out the words. It didn't matter. He was restored again, at last, here in his own private world. And he smiled. He smiled as the bugs tore through his skin as easily as they had his shirt, quickly borrowing to the heat of his exposed guts. His inside slopped out of his midsection and lay with a wet thump on the floor, and these two were set upon by the bugs. They ate him from the inside out, and never once did the smile leave his face. As quickly as they had come, the bugs took off, the cloud pulling together and returning to the sky. All they left in that apartment was blood and bone and a wad of cloth. The gore soaked through the cardboard box, corrupting its dimensions. The box fell apart. The skull contained within dropped to the floor and rolled, stopping only when it hit the ventilator with a soft tink. And then, silence. Except, wait. A door creaks open. A face appears. Blood drips from a wound on Rebecca's forehead, but she's otherwise intact. She calls for her daddy. She sees what remains. Rebecca runs from the apartment. It's a lucky thing she didn't break her neck, her eyes blinded by tears. She reaches the streets and then, at last, she stumbles and she falls. She lays there, crying. She is so caught up in the exhaustion, the fear, the grief, that she does not hear the scraping sound coming from just behind her. Nor does she notice the pair of slime and crescent arms out lifting up the manhole cover. The cover is set aside. A body clambers out from the sewer. Hands reach for the girl. But that's another story. Hello, and thank you for listening to this episode of Black Sun Dispatches. This was episode three, Ernest Fleming Has a Box. My name is Brandon Foley, and I write, produce, and perform the show. Black Sun Dispatches is only one of many great shows offered by the Cinepunks Podcast Network. Uh, even if you didn't like this one, uh, you should still check out where all our stuff, stuff like Cinepunks, Loud Fast Philly, Horror Business, or any other new shows. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff here, so like I said, if you didn't like mine, you might like theirs. Uh, Cinepunks is sponsored by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. You can hit them up at xlvacx.com. You can be a Cinepunk sponsor yourself by supporting our Patreon, which you can find on our website. If you like this show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, it helps spread the word on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, is Snapchat still a thing? I, I don't know. Uh, but you know, please help get the word out. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the true Brennan F. And you can follow the show on Black Sun Show, uh, which will have updates and various hints about what future episodes will be about. Black Sun Dispatch's logo was designed by Jennifer Rogers. Uh, the show is produced using Reaper Media. And music for this week's show was Winter by E.L. Heath. All right, so the plan is that we'll be back next week with episode four. Uh, the episode is entitled The Sewer. 
The plan is for that episode to be the last of our initial rollout of the show, and starting in June, we'll be kind of falling into our regular schedule of maybe one or two episodes per month. Uh, so hope that you are there for that. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Uh, please let us know what you think of the show. Hopefully, like I said, you guys are still enjoying it. I uh, look forward to hearing more from you, uh, and hopefully you'll enjoy next week's episode just as much. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye.